The title of today's sermon is Parables of the Kingdom of God. And it's taken from Matthew 13, verses 13 through 35, and 44 through 53. A whole nation was convinced to go to war against the world and to annihilate or try to annihilate a whole people in Nazi Germany. Do you ever wonder how you and I grew up loving our country, willing to die for it, believing in capitalism? How can things be so turned on their heads today? Why do these kids believe in socialism? Why do they believe God's their enemy? I'll tell you why because they've been brainwashed. They've been taught things that are not true. You and I were taught that the founders were great men. Yeah, they grew up in an era with slavery, but they wanted to get rid of it. Now they're condemned as being bad because they own slaves, right? How can it be? Well, I'm going to tell you something this morning. You've been brainwashed too. You've been brainwashed in your understanding of Scripture because you do not allow Scripture to speak for itself. Clearly and plainly what it says to you. When the Gospels they were written, it was talking, Jesus was talking to Jews under the law, not to the church. And you want to go back and interpret the Gospels through the church. I'm going to show you how wrong that is today. Jesus was talking to disciples who were Jews, not Christians. The church did not even exist. And yet we all want to go back and interpret the Gospel record through what we know today from the epistles. Let me show you how wrong that is. Do you want to write understanding of Scripture? Do you really want to understand it the way? Then read it the way that it's written, not the way that you've been taught so wrongly by so many churches in the past. Would you bow with me in prayer? Let us ask God to be our guide. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit have freedom to teach us from this so important passage that we find in Matthew chapter 13. Give us wisdom and illumination through the Spirit of God, we ask in Christ's name. Well, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And many commentators, when they come to this text and this book, they see it as the most important chapter in all of the Bible. Did you know that? Matthew is the most important book. And chapter 13, they say, is the most important chapter in Matthew This book and chapter, they say, are of great importance. But then they go on to say, we're not sure what it really means. So what I'd like to do this morning is to offer you my best understanding of it. Of course, there are those out there in Christendom who are of the Reformed Calvinist position who comment on this text, and they make these parables say something that Jesus never intended them to say. They directly apply these parables to the church today. They say that because they believe that the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. You see, the template that one overlays on top of the scripture determines the meaning in it that we will find. It's sort of like reinterpreting history. Let me give you an example. Take Great Britain. If we try to interpret our relationship with Great Britain by co-mixing the four wars that we've been involved with them, we would come up with a crazy understanding. For example, 
the first two wars, the Revolutionary War and the 1812, War of 1812, they were our enemy. In the First and Second World War, they were our co-conspirators uh, against Nazi Germany. What if we mix those events up? If we determine who were friend and foe a hundred years later by the way that we felt about them now, we would totally misunderstand the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. In order to understand our New Testament, we must not read it back into the Old Testament. We must not read it back into the Gospels. There is no direct relationship to the teaching of Jesus about the church and the Gospel. He's teaching Jews under the law. It's simply bad theology to do that. It's called eisegesis, reading back new information, new truths into old circumstances. How can we do that? It's when we interject information that we know now today back into a time when they had no knowledge of it. It destroys any possibility of really understanding what the original author was saying to the people that he was speaking to. As you know, the Gospels record the history of the Acts and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ during his lifetime. We learn from the gospel writer, Matthew, that Jesus came to restore the Davidic kingdom. Oftentimes, he refers to this Davidic kingdom restoration as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So when the Reformed Calvinist comes to these texts in the Bible, he rejects the kingdom as being present today, and he must understand it as a mystery in form. Jesus came to restore the Davidic kingdom, but that did not happen. He was rejected by his own people. And so they must interpret the kingdom as something different than it was originally intended. Reformed speakers like John Stott, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, Mark Deaver, Francis Chan, John Piper, David Platt, Spurgeon, Luther, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, and many others interpret the Bible in that manner. The question is, what did Jesus mean when he used the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God? Was he speaking about a kingdom within the hearts of believers with Jesus reigning on the throne of your heart, or was he talking about a literal kingdom? Well, for the reformers, he's talking about a mystical kingdom in the hearts of believers today. I believe Jesus is talking about a literal kingdom with a literal land, with literal people, real people, underneath his authority and following his rules as he reigns. Jesus shares six parables in this text, or some might say seven, which detail the coming kingdom and what it will be like. So, do these parables refer to the kingdom of God which is, that is within you? Within you now? That's what these theologians that I just mentioned say. I would not listen to them, by the way. They're interpreting the Bible incorrectly. 
Or does this refer to a coming kingdom in which Jesus will rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years in the future? That's the decision that you have to make as you study this text. Has the church replaced Israel? Or does God have two separate and distinct programs, one for Israel and one for the church? I believe the key to interpreting the Bible, however, is employing the correct paradigm. Let me explain that. Now, there are many knowledgeable people out there who will disagree with my beliefs, my hermeneutic, but then there are many who do agree with it. Let me explain it to you. This is when we come to the Bible with a dispensational paradigm, a dispensational biblical hermeneutic. That's so important. We must understand the Bible, which is what the Bible teaches on how to understand the Bible, and that is incorporated into a dispensational hermeneutic. It rests on three pillars, three methods, three principles, three guides of interpreting the Scripture. The first principle of interpretation is the grammatical principle. The Bible was not written in English. I hate to disappoint you people that think the Bible was written in English. It was not. We have some friends here, some lovely church members that are from the Philippines. Do you have a Bible in your own tongue in the Philippines? It was not written in Tagalog. It was not written in English. The Bible was not written in English. Please drive that home in your thinking. What you are reading is a translation of what some commentator thought the Bible says. The Bible was written in Greek and in Hebrew. The original languages are what is inspired, not your English text. So to understand the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, we must understand the basic rules of grammar. We must use the grammatical principle in understanding the Bible. We must examine the words in their original language, in their phrases, in their, in, in, in their context for the correct understanding of a passage. That will determine the meaning and the way the author uses it. His authorial, authorial intent is revealed by the usage of his mother tongue. The second principle of interpretation that dispensationalists use, which many do not, is the literal principle. Serious Bible students take the Bible as it is written. They do not try to reinterpret it with, with meanings for words that did not exist when the Bible was written, nor do they read into it meaning that was not intended by the author. The Bible is to be taken literally. Yes, they, it uses figures of speech. We understand that. But it is not within our purview to spiritualize or allegorize the clear meaning of the scriptures. For example, when the biblical author speaks of the promised land, he's referring to a literal piece of ground over there in the Middle East, which we call Israel. He's not allegorizing it and referring to our heavenly abode somewhere in the netherworld. That's not the promised land. So we follow the grammatical principle. We let language mean what it meant when it was written. We understand the Bible literally, unless it's being used as a figure. And we understand, thirdly, the Bible in its historical context. This is the historical principle. Over time, cultures change. Points of view mutate. 
Words take on new meaning. Just think of what the word gay means today. When I was growing up, gay didn't refer to homosexuals. It meant happy people. If I say to you that Dave Bruns is gay, what does that mean to you? Today. Doesn't mean what it meant 30, 40 years ago, does it? Dave is a wonderful heterosexual man. Married for 50 years or something like that to Judy. How many years is it? (laughs) Words change in their understanding. For us to interpret the Bible correctly, we must understand the historical context in which the Bible was written, the culture it was written to, and the way that people understood it then. We must look at through the lens of the historical concept in which context in which it was written. That means we must take into consideration the geography, the customs, the current events at that time, and even the politics when it was written. To understand ancient cultures and biblical times, we must understand archaeology today. We must understand sociology used in that day. We must interpret the parables of of Matthew 13 in that light. We must not allegorize them or spiritualize them. Unfortunately, that is exactly what the covenantal reformists do. They allegorize the Bible, the words and the phrases that are used in it. They give it meaning that the original authors would never have in mind. They assert things that this stands for that, which is totally read into the text. Bible students must use the correct hermeneutic in interpreting the scripture or they will come up with the wrong meaning and the wrong applications. Many preachers today astonish their congregations by giving wild meanings to biblical texts. Matthew 13 is one such text. So let us actually study what Jesus said in it and try to come up with the meaning that the listeners would have had when they heard him speak it. Matthew 13 gives us the purpose of parables in verses 34 and 35. Let's look at that. Turn with me to Matthew 13, which can be found on page 972. Jesus has already stated his purpose for parables in verses 10 through 17, and now here in verses 34 and 35, he restates them again to make sure everybody was on the same page with him. We read in verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. As I noted previously, when we looked at those other seven verses up earlier in the chapter, verses 10 through 17, Jesus explained that he spoke in parables to the crowds to conceal truth from unbelievers and to reveal truth to those who had trusted in him as king. So Matthew states here that the shift in his teaching style to parables was not accidental, it was done on purpose. Now that is not to say that Jesus didn't teach at other times using other different forms of teaching. He uses parables here to teach the crowds. Why? Matthew 25 tells us. Now please understand this. 
This is essential. Matthew tells us that he did so to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Jesus spoke in parables to fulfill the Old Testament to prove who he was. I will open my mouth in parables. Notice if you have a good Bible that is in italics or in large print to show that it is a quote from the Old Testament. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew quotes here from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 to show that this was God's intent from the very beginning, from the foundations of the world. Jesus spoke in parables to fulfill the Old Testament. He's fulfilling prophecy by doing this. Now, many Bible commentators also point to Psalms chapter 78 and verse 2 for another reason. There we read David, the psalmist, speaking for God about the coming Messiah, his great-great-grandson, and saying this, I will open my mouth in parables and I I will utter hidden things, things from the old. Mysteries. Things that have been concealed. Hidden things, things from old, the old. I could share with you many other texts for support of this, but I think Isaiah 6 and Psalm 78 are, are sufficient to do that. As the psalmist states here, it is to reveal hidden truths. Now, let's turn our attention back up earlier in the text to verse 31. You'll recall last week, if you were here with me, we looked at the first parable in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, 13, the parable of the wheat and weeds. Now we have the mustard seed, and Jesus presents to them another parable, saying, verse 31, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, get this now, it's very important, he repeats it again and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. It's essential, if we're going to understand this parable and the other ones that are coming in this text, that Jesus is making a comparison. He uses the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, similar to. Well, here it's similar to a mustard seed. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Each of these parables that are given in this text, except for the first, begin in this exact same manner. Now, the kingdom of heaven is like this or that. Now let me be clear. The reformers, the Calvinists, will find great meaning in the phrase the kingdom of heaven and its use over the kingdom of God. But as I've told you and shown you from the scriptures, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonymous. Jesus used them in the same sentence together, speaking to the rich young ruler. They have the exact same meaning. So why would they use different terms? And I also explained that to you. To the Jew, it was forbidden. Then... And now to say the word God. They don't say God. Go look on a Jewish website and you'll find G slash D or just dot, dot, dot. They will not say it. Why is that? It's, they, they use circumlocution is what it's called here. They use one word in place of another. Because they can't say God, they have to say something else so they will say heaven. Because if they say God, what are they doing? They're risking themselves of doing what? Breaking the Ten Commandments, which says not to use the the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
So they substitute heaven. So whenever you read this text, some of you people who are rigid, whenever you see this text, you insert the word God. Just like when you see repent. We had this discussion this morning. You don't repent. It's a word made in the 1500s. It came up in the 1500s. You put in the biblical meaning from the Greek, which is have a change of mind. That's what that means. Here, heaven means God. If you don't get that, you're never going to get the scriptures. If you don't get these simple truths based on the Proper understanding of Scripture, you will never interpret it correctly. Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God is going to be like. So who's he talking to? Jews. He's not talking to the church. Who goes into the kingdom of God? Jews. Jesus came to Israel and he offered to restore the Davidic kingdom. Who would be in a kingdom of David? Jews. Wow. It's so simple. And yet, many commentators out there that you listen to on the radio will inject the church into this. The comparison being made here by Jesus is a mustard seed to the coming kingdom that he will institute when he returns at the second coming. Please note that the seed here is not the condiment mustard that we think of. It was a noxious bush that grew in the fields in Israel. It wasn't good for anything. I'm struck by the contrast between the two things that are being compared here. The wonderful kingdom of God and a noxious bush. A mustard seed was commonly found, stop that, commonly found in the ancient world. Started out really, really small, as you know, and it grew really, really big. You find mustard plants along the Sea of Galilee then and now. Now, Jesus' audience, as he's speaking to the disciples, they might have been able to look out the windows and the doors of Peter's house and see some of these mustard plants that were growing. In verse 32, Jesus tells us that the mustard seed is actually the smallest of all seeds, or smaller, if you've got a good Bible, than all other seeds. But when it is fully grown, it is larger than the garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, if you notice, if you have a good Bible, the birds of the air and the nest in its branches are in italics or um, large lettering, all caps. That indicates it's a quote directly from the Old, Old Testament, in this case, Daniel. Okay, so back in Daniel's time, the, the, nest, the birds came to nest in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus is talking about his kingdom, the birds nesting in it. Okay, so the com- comparison is being made to the kingdom of God and this mustard seed, which grows from a tiny little seed to the huge plant, big enough, some say 15 feet tall, for these birds to nest in. So these birds will come and nest in his kingdom is what he's saying. Now, if you were here last week, you'll recall that the parable of the sower, we had seed that was thrown, and most of the seed produced no fruit. The mustard seed is a noxious seed, and yet it grows and it grows and it grows so big that birds, which are always an emblem of evil, crows, will come and nest in the tree. 
despite the small size of the seed, smaller than any seed known at the time, it grows into this humongous plant. Jesus is saying that despite the proportions of the seed, despite the proportions of what you see as the kingdom of God now, 12 men and a few other disciples, this kingdom will grow huge and birds will come to nest in it. That is, evil birds, evil will come to nest in the kingdom of God. And we know that during the kingdom of God, there will be a rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reformers have allegorized this text. They say it foreshadows the coming of the church. And that the church is going to grow huge and big and that it will be a political entity in the world. As I said, there was no church at this time. They had no context in which to place that in. It would have been meaningless to the disciples. They would have had absolutely no understanding of what Jesus was talking about. So Jesus is speaking of the literal Davidic kingdom which he will establish when he returns at the second coming as the Messiah king and rule and reign over it for a thousand years. Now, we know that there is an interim period, a parenthesis between the kingdom offered by Christ and the kingdom in actuality, in reality, in the millennial kingdom. Jesus is talking about that interim period. There will be a time period in which he will go away, if you will. Where does Jesus go away to? I can't hear you. Heaven. Where is Jesus now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and me according to the scriptures, correct? Is Jesus ruling and reigning in your heart? Is he king in your life? No. Who's in your life? The Holy Spirit is ruling in your life or should be trying to. Jesus came and he arrived in Israel, with humble beginnings, he was born in Bethlehem, small seed, and yet it will grow beyond description, huge. In the millennial kingdom, he will rule over all of the earth from Jerusalem. Now, let me be clear. There are timeless truths within all passages of the scripture. There's a timelessness to what Jesus is saying. And does this have some application to what will happen with the church? Sure. But Jesus is not talking to the church here. The direct application is to Israel, to Jews. Exactly. How do we know that? He uses Old Testament prophets to support it, doesn't he? He quotes Isaiah and he quotes Daniel. The church is not in view here, yet there are some timeless applications we should make to. But we shouldn't focus on that. We should focus on who it's written to. The teaching is basically directed to and concerns Israel. That being said, let's now look at the next parable. The parable of the leaven, found in verse 33. Jesus spoke another parable to them, says the text. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and she hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Sue, you didn't do that at home, did you? You didn't hide any leaven in the... Or what, what would we call it today? Yeast, okay? Once again, Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven, or God, the kingdom of God, to leaven. We usually think of leaven as being yeast. 
We use it in baking. We think of it as something good. But in the scriptures, leaven is always associated with evil, sin. And as you know, leaven must be removed from all Jewish homes during the high holidays. You cannot worship God and have leaven in your homes. It was excluded from all the sacrifices made at the temple. When the Lord speaks of leaven, he uses it of hypocrisy, false teaching, and compromising with the world system. Paul uses leaven as the exact same figure as Jesus. He speaks of leaven as being carnality within the church and false doctrine. So when we see leaven, we see a picture of sin and evil quietly growing and corrupting and taking over that which is good. A very small amount of leaven can do great damage or great good. It can work its way through an entire lump of dough. Can you see it? No, it's doing its work and it radically changes the size and the shape of the dough. If left alone, however, the dough will become corrupt and useless. The point that Jesus is making by comparing the kingdom of God to leaven is not that it is sin, but that it is pervasive and that it is unseen. It stimulates an enormous amount of growth. And much like the last parable we just went through, the parable of the mustard, leaven indicates that the dough will grow, 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 grow. So will the kingdom of God. It will have a very small beginning, but it will grow into something huge. Now, he's speaking to 12 uneducated fishermen. A couple did other things, but basically they're fishermen. And they're looking around at themselves and thinking, this is going to be the kingdom of God? This is going to grow into something huge? So huge that it's got birds resting in it? Well, the Bible tells us that these 12 would turn the world upside down, right? So we have the picture here, the figure of a woman putting leaven or yeast into three pecks of flour, which is enough to feed 150 people bread, and it grows and grows and grows. That's what will happen to the kingdom of God when Jesus institutes it, following the tribulation, and the millennial begins. The millennium begins. The Old Testament prophets always pictured a worldwide kingdom over which the Messiah would come and rule. But Jesus is asking his disciples then and now to believe in a coming kingdom that will just take over the world and he will be its ruler and king. The third parable is found in verse 44, the hidden treasure. Jesus says to his disciples, ad nauseum, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the land. Now again, our Calvinist Reformed friends have misinterpreted this verse. It's, by the way, this, this, this uh, parable is unique to Matthew. It's only found here. It's the story of a man who finds something of great value hidden in a field. He looks at it. And then he quickly buries it again on the field. Why would he do that? And then he goes and he saves all his money up enough to purchase the field. As you might have guessed, in ancient times, people would bury their goods. 
They would bury their treasures into a field for safekeeping. Apparently, there were no banks like Wells Fargo back there, back then. So this was done in order to protect their stuff from being stolen by thieves. While the treasure is not stated, and here it is one of the things that's of conjecture by those who try to translate this text. It seems logical to think that this is a servant, and he's working in somebody's field, and he comes across this booty that's been buried in there. He stumbles, if you will, he's not looking for it, a treasure buried by someone else. In order to lay claim to that treasure, he must buy the field for himself and then redig it up for him to have it. Now, who does this apply to? Who are the figures in here? Is this just any old man? Is this a Jew? Is this the church? Is this Jesus? We have many tales like this in our culture today, don't we? We have many tales of lost treasure being found by others. I just read on the uh, internet in the news a couple months ago of a, of a Spanish galleon that had been discovered in the Pacific Ocean. The boat went down with millions of dollars worth of Spanish gold doubloons. And guess what? There's like three countries and the finders arguing over who the doubloons belong to. Jesus employs the same imagery to his listeners who would have understood the story. They would have heard of such uh, things happening within the Jewish culture. Someone found a great treasure that they didn't bury and they went about to make it their own. Jesus is speaking of kingdom riches and the responsibility of his followers. Since Jesus has been rejected by the nation of Israel, the treasure has been buried again. And it has to be purchased and dug up and found once again. Now, the man stumbles upon this treasure trove in a field, and he makes every effort to, give it, uh, to gain it for himself. Some of the Reformed Calvinists teach that the man who finds the treasure and reburies it is Christ. Okay? The man who then uh, must seek this treasure and pay for it in order to obtain it. Of course, this does not fit with what we know, that salvation cannot be bought. It is best to understand the treasure buried in the field as a figure of Israel and not Christ or the church. Some attribute that this church is finding this treasure and that they are paying all to own it. But this is best attributed to, again, following the uh, hermeneutic that's here, that Jesus is speaking to the church, uh, excuse me, speaking to Israel, to his disciples. And so it is best to speak of the man who finds the treasure in the field as Israel. Israel rejects Christ, reburies the treasure in the field. But at his second coming, and during the tribulation, right before his second coming, they refind it, they dig it up, and they make it their own. Now, um, in, verse nine, in verse 5 of Exodus 19, we read substantiation for this when the Lord says of Israel... If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth for me. And then in the psalmist, in uh, Psalm 178, he says to Israel, I'm sorry, 78, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, for Israel is my own possession. In a, in a real sense, then, Israel belongs to God. 
and it is buried and then re-dug up later on as the chosen people of God who are saved in the tribulation. Now, in the next... Um, in the next... In the next parable we have in verse 45, the merchant and the pearl. There we read, again, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Again, we have a similar scenario in this as in the last parable. This parable, again, is also unique to the purposes of Matthew because he's speaking to the people of Israel. This teaching of Jesus is being turned on its head and, and directly applied to the church once again. This parable of the pearl is compared to the hidden treasure. Jesus is describing for himself, uh, describing for his disciples, I should say, what the kingdom of God will be like. Previously, he said that, the, uh, that Israel would be need to be rediscovered and revealed. Here, much the same thing is said, except with subtle differences. Israel was the hidden treasure that needed to be stumbled upon. But here, the merchant or the seeker of the great pearl is out to discover it. He's looking for it. He went in search of it, and he sold all that he had to own it. So, we have the same issues with this as in the last text. If the merchant is the church, which the Reformers and the Calvinists say, then what they have is the church buying and paying for their salvation because he sold all that he had to buy it. But I believe this refers to the nation of Israel, the Jews. Again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That's his audience. Calvinists suggest the merchant is representative of lost sinners searching for salvation and that the church is the great pearl that they're looking for. But Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, not the church. Therefore, this doesn't make sense that the sinner would seek Christ the pearl and then pay for it. That would violate our understanding that the gospel message is free gift given to the lost sinner. The seeker and finder, the merchant in this text, has to be Christ who purchased mankind on the cross of Calvary. And... As I said, he purchases the pearl, which was God's people, God's chosen people, the possession, as I pointed out in the last two quotes from the Old Testament, that were of great value to him. In Exodus, the Lord once again said to Israel, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among the peoples, for the earth is mine. The pearl is Israel and not the church. And in Deuteronomy, the Lord said to the people of Israel, You are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for my own possession. Christ died for the Jews. He bought them. Finally, the psalmist explains why God chose Israel above all the other nations of the world. He said, The Lord chose Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. The hidden treasure and the pearl of great price are Israel the people of Israel, the Jews, not the church. It is only when we use proper hermeneutics 
and understand whom Jesus is speaking to that we can understand this text. And we don't allegorize it or bring in meaning that is foreign to the text, like inserting the church when the church is not even in existence at this time. So, that brings us to the, the next parable, the parable of the dragnet in verse 47, as some call it. Jesus says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like, not the church is like, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we're going to insert in there, is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering the fish of every kind. The Lord is addressing fishermen. He's speaking to Jewish men, mostly who were fishermen, who fished on the Sea of Galilee. They know what it's like to go out and use a dragnet. And again, this text is, this parable is unique. It's only found in Matthew, who's speaking to Jews directly. A dragnet, as you might know, is just what it sounds like. A net weighted on one end with weights, and the other end, it has floats. The fishermen then drag through the water, waters and gather up the fish. The weighted end sinks to the bottom, and the floated end stays on on the top surface of the water as they drag it across, scooping up everything in its path. And in verse 48, Jesus tells us when the net is filled, they draw it up on the beach, and they sat down, and they gather the good fish into containers, and the bad fish they throw away. The net catches both the good and the bad fish, like the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Have a change of mind, said Jesus. When it is shared with the Jews, the gospel of the kingdom catches both good and bad people in it. And it's separated at a time in the future, which we're going to get to in just a minute. The nets pulled up to shore in this illustration and the fishermen separated by kind, good and bad. Some's good to eat and some's not, and they throw that away. Just like the story Uh, in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The emphasis is that there's a mixture of good and bad in response to the message of the kingdom. It's oftentimes difficult, as we know from that wheat and weeds illustration, to identify who are the good people and who are the bad. Jesus teaches in verse 49, it will be at the end of the age, not at the rapture. It will be at the end of the age that the angels will come forth. What happens at the rapture? Jesus comes and meets us in the air. This is not the rapture. When is this? The second coming. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked Jews from from amongst the righteous Jews. Notice that the sorting of the fish into baskets is what took place on the shore. The Jews... When they heard Jesus speak in this manner, must have placed it within the framework that they were taught. The Jews had two ages, not like we do today. They had two ages in their minds about God's redemptive program. There was the current age in which they lived, and then there was the end of the world, the end of the age, when the Lord sorts out the sheep from the goats. They believed God would send a human Messiah who would, by force, come and take over. And then there would be the judgment, and the Lord would then reign and bring about the end of the age. Now, some of your English translations say end of the world. That's incorrect. The word that's used there is axion in Greek, which means age, not world. 
Jesus never teaches that the world is going to end. No matter what you've been taught, that's not true. Um, The world doesn't end. It's recreated um, into a garden-like state. Jesus never says that this is going to happen at the end of the church age either. Notice that. The disciples, again, have no concept of a church at this point in time. That doesn't come until later. So the only kind of age that they would have in their mind was the Jewish concept. And Jesus is teaching them that the judgment that comes will occur after this parenthesis period, which he has not defined for them. And we'll get into more fully when we look at Matthew 24 and 25. More specifically, we know this takes place at the close of the tribulation period. So we must not err, as the Reformed Calvinists do, and read into this text something that these men would not have known at the time. It is the judgment that they are thinking of when Jews will be separated into good and bad. That's exactly what Jesus says in the next verse when we read, the wicked will be thrown into the, fire, the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Obviously, this cannot be a reference to the temporal place, temporary holding tank, for lack of a better description, called Sheol. This has to be at the end of the age when God tells us that the good are separated from the bad, and some are sent to the abyss along with the devil and his angels for a thousand years. Now, notice that this is the teaching of dispensationalists. This is the teaching of those who understand the the Bible rightly, as we see in this video from John Ankenberg. I believe that there are two separate distinct future comings of the Lord. The first one, to rapture the church out of the world before the seven-year tribulation period. The second one, immediately after the, second, after the seven-year tribulation period, Christ coming to rule the world. Some are reasons for believing that. Uh, at the rapture, Christ comes only to the air. But at a second coming, he comes the whole way down to planet Earth. Uh, second, uh, at the rapture, he comes himself to uh, take the believers out of the world, whereas at a second coming, Matthew 24, he sends his angels, he comes with his holy angels, sends them into the world to gather uh, people together uh, here on on the face of the earth. Uh, Third, uh, the order of things at the second coming is the reverse of that at the rapture. At the rapture, it's the believers who are removed from the earth in blessing, and the unbelievers are left here on the earth. But at the second coming, after the tribulation period, We've seen it's the unbelievers who are removed from the earth in judgment, and it's the believers who are left here to go to the next period of world history, namely the millennium. And fourth, when the rapture takes place, the destiny of those who are taken from the earth, the believers removed, is a a blessed destiny. They're going to meet the Lord in the air, return with him to his Father's house in heaven, where they will live in the dwelling places together with the Lord that he's prepared for his church saints now. By contrast, the destiny of those who are removed from the earth at the second coming of Christ after the tribulation period is a horrible destiny. They are removed from the earth in judgment. They are cast into a place of fire, terrible torment, where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. So these contrasts convince me, together with other reasons as well, that there are two future comings and the rapture will be a totally separate, distinct event from the second coming of Christ after the seven-year tribulation period. 
Jesus is speaking to Jews who have no concept of the church, and he's speaking of his second coming, which they anticipate. You'll recall that after Jesus dies, is buried, and rises again, he, 50 days later, meets with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he rises up into heaven. But before he leaves, they have one question for Jesus. Do you remember what that question is? When will you institute your kingdom? They're still thinking in kingdom. But we know there's an interim period where you and I live now. The interregnum is what they call it. The church age. But they were Jews. And what will happen? When the Lord Jesus sends tribulation down upon the earth during those seven years, Israel, according to the Bible, is saved. All Israel turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then... He institutes the Davidic kingdom upon the earth for for 1,000 years. Now, as church members, we are part of all of that, but Jesus is dealing basically with Israel once again. So when the Reformed Calvinist says that the church has replaced Israel, what happens to all that truth? It goes out the window. And they have to reinterpret all of Scripture from what it plainly teaches, literally teaches, in sections like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In Revelation 4 through 19, where the church is never mentioned, only Israel. So at this time, those who have survived the tribulation, the wicked and the righteous, are brought by the angels for separation and sent to either the abyss, where they gnash their teeth and mourn, or they go directly into the millennial kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ, where he rules and reigns for a thousand years. In verse 51, the Lord asks the disciples this intriguing question. Now get this, this is the most important verse I'm going to look at today. If he's told them all of these parables, right? And he really means the church, but the church isn't in existence yet, right? doesn't come into being until Pentecost, Right? Have you understood all of these things? What should have been the disciples' answer? (laughs) We have no idea what you're talking about. Explain it to me. I've got no context to put this in. And what do they answer him? Yes, Lord. Yes, we get it. We understand what you were saying because he was talking about Israel. Next, What some point out as the seventh parable in this text, I'll leave that to you to decide whether or not it is. I believe it is. The parable of the householder, Jesus says to them, therefore every scribe, now understand some English texts are different here. I'm giving you the correct one. It says, Jesus said to them, therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of God Insert God is like the head of a householder who brings out his treasure. These new and old. This, of course, he uses the word therefore, points back to verse 51 where Jesus said, do you understand this stuff? And they said, yes. He's saying to them that they are now scribes. They are to write down and pass this treasure on, including all that was in the Old Testament. And do they do that? Yes. 
Uh, it's like 66% of the New Testament is direct quotes from the Old Testament. Plus that which is new, Jesus' parables and his teaching, plus all of the information in the epistles, pass this out. They are now the legal experts. They have replaced the scribes of old, and they have become the writers of the New Testament. Pretty interesting, isn't it? When you understand its context, it really is clear. Now, the conclusion in verse 53, Jesus says, when he finished the parables, he departs from there. Now, those who object to this understanding of Matthew 13 reject the idea of a postponement called the church age. They see the kingdom as having ensued at the moment that Jesus died and he came to rule and to reign in the hearts of believers. I reject that. The kingdom did not take a mystery form. We do not live in a kingdom. We are not kingdom people, as you will often hear. We are not building the kingdom, are we? We're building the church. A different people with a different program. We are not kingdom people. You hear people use that all the time and they use it wrongly. We are church people. We belong to the ecclesia, the called out group. We're Gentiles primarily, aren't we? We're not Jews. Jesus says, I'm finished with these parables. Now, it's not a mystery kingdom that he's talking about and describing in these parables, but a real kingdom, not a secret kingdom. This is totally in accord with what the prophets of old taught in the New Testament. They did not expect a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of believers. They expected a real kingdom which Jesus would rule and reign over from Jerusalem. That's what I look forward to. I look forward to the day the Lord Jesus calls us to be with him for seven years and then we return in victory and he rules from Jerusalem and we reign with him as co Rainers with Christ. So how do we apply this biblical truth to our life? How do we take these parables using a proper hermeneutic and apply them to our life? First, we must not blindly follow the teaching of what we have been taught in the past, but understand the scriptures in the way that God intended them, literally, historically, and grammatically. We must make every effort to look at the language that the Lord uses and the writers use, to look at the historical context, the, the grammar. We must take it literally and understand it. What it meant to the listeners then is how we should then apply it applicationally to ourselves today. This begins by keeping Israel and the church distinct from one another. We should also remember that judgment is coming upon the Jews just as it is all people. So we must have Israel in our hearts and minds. They are God's special people. We should pray for the peace of Israel, peace of Jerusalem, and when we have opportunity, we should witness to the Jew first. Right? Isn't that what Scripture teaches? We should remember that God never has in mind for you and me judgment. He's never going to have us stand before the angels and could divide us into the sheep and goats. That's Israel. We will stand before the Bema seat. The only place we will stand in judgment is the Bema seat where God will either reward us or withhold rewards depending upon how we obeyed him in this life. This life is a testing ground for you and me. Will we obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we 
follow him, be in harmony with his teaching, or will we do what we want? It's up to you. You will either be rewarded or you will lose out on those rewards God intended and hoped to give you in the future. I urge you to make the right choices this morning, to choose Christ, to obey him, to seek his pleasure, to seek to be his servant, and to earn eternal rewards. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we are so grateful for the book of Matthew, what it teaches us about your people, Israel. And thank God they rejected you because that allowed you to choose us. Help us, Father, now to complete the program for the church, reaching out with the gospel message to be your witnesses as we await your second coming, as we await the rapture of the church and your return to rule and reign. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.